keep expecting the Clark and Lee to be gone, and you guys are still here. So, are you leaving this week? Okay. Good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. What's that, Eleanor? Hi. Hi. All right, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for being so good to us. Thank you for loving us consistently, faithfully. Thank you for working in our hearts, not leaving us to our old natures. Thank you for the new heart. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. Thank you for the blood of Christ and uh, the cleansing that we have because of him. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to know you rightly. And I pray, Father, that we would be able to communicate the truth of who you are to those coming behind us. Um, Lord, I know that we get you wrong so often. Uh, and I just I ask God that you would help us through your word to see, your, see you and see ourselves rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so those of you who are in Danny's class will uh, come back into this class, and we will be doing more laws of purification today, and you'll be like, well, is that all there is in numbers? And if you're in this class, you know that actually most of the class is not about uh, different laws and purification and those things. Um, numbers is supplemental. It gives us the history of the period of Israel wandering in the wilderness, so it gives, I wouldn't call them the high points, they gives a lot of the low points, a lot of rebellion, a lot of uh, struggle. In the uh, previous chapters, um, 16 to 18, it's largely about Korah's rebellion. And this was a rebellion of the Levites against the Aaronic priesthood. And so it, God crushes it. He deals with it decisively. Uh, like three different ways he deals with this, this rebellion. And, he, and we talked about how this is a clear lesson that there is only one means of being clean before God. In the Old Testament... They are going through God's appointed priests and sacrifices. But these priests, the priests and sacrifices all point to uh, Christ, both in his sacrifice and in his priestly intercession. So, the numbers, in, in many ways, is about uh, pointing us to Jesus Christ. And that's just very important that we never lose sight of that. Uh, also, numbers um, really helps us in the daily living issues. So you got like Exodus and Deuteronomy kind of giving you the law and those kind of things, but Numbers gives you a lot of real life situations and then it helps you to understand how does the appointed priests and sacrifices relate to that daily living situation. So if you remember, in Korah's rebellion, there were a lot of people that died, right? whole lot of people that die in Korah's Rebellion. And if you remember, if you have contact with a dead person, what does that make you? Unclean. So if you understand that, then you get to chapter 19 and you go, oh, that's why they're talking about purification and cleansing again. And they're dealing with issues like being in contact with a dead person or a leprous person. And so they're, they're dealing with that whole issue again. Okay, so um, that being said, just helps us understand 
Um, one commentator says, since death was a common exposure for all persons, a special pragmatically feasible ritual was established for addressing the problem. Numbers 19 details the ritual purification process that would be continuously available to, to the people without having to sacrifice an animal every time there was a death in the family. So this is just helping you understand that, you know, do we have to go through the whole process again every time someone dies? And in this situation, a lot of families had someone near them that had died. So, okay, so let's, uh, there are going to be four types of cleansing in this chapter. There's going to be sprinkling with blood. There's going to be washing clothes. There's going to be bathing the body. And there's also going to be sprinkling of unclean objects. All right, let's just read now. Verses 1 through 10. Who would like to read? Erica Ramazzini's giving me the... She, didn't even, she just looked this way. She didn't even try to say she wanted to. Um, can we take her the microphone? Oh, maybe. There it is. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood with its dung shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood with hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water, and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Okay, so the first thing... I just, this is just a, maybe a little helpful thing as you read the Bible. Um, at, in verse 1, the, the ceremonial laws of purification are referred to as statutes and laws. And I just want that's important because as you, re- sometimes when you read Oh, keep all of God's law, keep all of his statutes. Keep. Sometimes it's easy to just read, obey, 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 obey. Keep it. Be perfect in obedience. Well, that's true. We are supposed to submit to God's moral law and be obedient to it. But part of keeping God's law is uh, carrying out these ceremonial purification laws. So in our day and age, what I would say, part of keeping God's law is taking your sins to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That is his command. Take your sins to Jesus. If you're going to apply this correctly, this is not, it's not something you just go, oh yeah, whatever. No, you have to actually bring your sin to Christ. Bring your need of cleansing to him. So I just want, as you read the Bible, sometimes you hear, I love your law, I love your statutes, I love your, well, you should hear two things. You should hear, yes, I love to obey God. That's, you know, I want to do that. But you should also hear, I need God's laws of purification for me. And a lot of times when you hear law, you just don't even include the second portion of this. But it's really nice that at the beginning of this, this isn't just called a a ceremonial law. It's just called God's statute. This is his command. This is his law. This is what he wants you to do. So um, bringing your sin to Christ. Okay, so uh, what sort of heifer is necessary a red heifer with no yoke upon it. Never been used to work. Um, 
no blemishes, okay? Um, and the, the idea is that this is a cow that is young, but probably full-grown, not, not just a calf. This is someone that's it's probably a pretty good-sized animal. Uh, not exactly sure why red, unless the symbol is has to do with just the, the covering and the blood and those kind of things. But, um, but in this situation, it is a female animal, right? Um, it's a lot of stuff in the in the uh, dispensational rebuilding of the temple of find you know establishing the red heifer and all that kind of thing. Well. Um, I'm not exactly sure uh, all the significance of this, but um, it's very specific, and God wants you to do it this way. So, um, now the cow is given to Eleazar. Why? Who is who is Eleazar first? He's the high priest, right? So the, the cow is given to Eleazar. It's interesting because he is he the one that slaughters the cow no so it's interesting I don't know if it's just a representative thing um, or he needs some cleansing as well I'm not exactly sure what's going on there um, but the cow is burned in the presence of Eleazar but where else are they outside, outside the camp because outside the camp is unclean right uh, then what does the priest do Yeah. What does he mix this blood with? Yeah, the hyssop and the cedar wood and the yarn. And again, I don't know all of the implications of these. Um, some people think they're just cleansing agents. Um, that's possible. Possible to give it a better smell. <laughs> because it would have not smelled very good. I, I don't know all this, but this is clear. God is saying, this is the way I want you to do it, and so they have to submit to this. Um, uh, one commentator says, only in this place, only in this place in Scripture, in all of the offerings is the blood of the sacrificial victim burned on the altar. Usually they pour the blood out kind of thing. But here they're burning the blood on the altar. Um, and I think it'll become clear why that's important here in a minute. Um, and then what does the priest do in verse 7? Yeah, he has to wash. Just, in, just taking part of this, he has to wash himself, wash his clothes, bathe his body, and he's still unclean until evening. Now, um, how about the man who performs the burning in verse 8? What does he have to do? Same thing, right? So anybody connected with this, this offering has to cleanse themselves. Okay, verse 9. Um, this is the important thing. What is done with the ashes? Remember, this is one of the few times where the blood is actually... Uh, a part of the ashes, right? So what's done with these ashes? They gather them up. They deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and they are kept for what purpose? It's not just the sin offering. They call it the water of impurity. Well, you're right. Later on, sin offering, right? But this water of impurity... So what's happening here are the ashes are being stored for future use. Okay? Now, understand, can you, can you predict when you're going to have contact with a dead person? Could happen at any time, couldn't it? Right? And, and it... Contact with a dead person makes you unclean. 
So, so you would have to do a sacrifice every time you came in contact with a dead person. You can imagine how wieldy this would be. So what does God do? Well, he creates a, the efficacious, ongoing cleansing agent of the ashes of this heifer so that you can apply it quickly at any time. It's just there. It's ready for use. Now you can see the, the, the mercy of God in this. Man, they probably couldn't move anywhere. If, you know, every time they had to, to uh, cleanse themselves, they had to do a new sacrifice every time. And you know, the, the, the tabernacle's on a journey. You get to set up the whole tabernacle, do the sacrifice. And so here, God is providing this ongoing way in a very practical way to say, look, you, you contact with a dead person, you could, this is a way you were clean. You're actually being cleansed by a sacrifice, even though it was a sacrifice that was performed in the past, so that you could have, okay? Um, let's see here. Um, All right, let's go ahead and read verses 11 through 22 and see how they're used then. So let's give it to Debbie Butler. Would you like to read? You don't have? Okay, good. Debbie Butler's over here. Uh, why don't you read um, 11 through 13 and then give it to either Brad or Shannon and they can do 14 through 22. There you go. Pass them up to those guys. Uh, yeah, hit the bo- just hold the bottom again. It'll it'll pop back on. It's so finicky. What do I do? Hello. There you go. You're on. Um, <clears throat> this is the law: when a man dies in a tent, all who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Wait, how far am I going? You're going through 22. Okay. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin. And running water shall be put on them in a vessel. A clean person shall take um, hyssop, 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 and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent, on all the vessels, on the person who were there, or, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day, and on the seventh day, and on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water, and at evening he shall be clean. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for him. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening." Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Okay. All right, so they have prepared the special ashes. Then, then what you do is you take these ashes and you mix them with water, and you have this special cleansing agent. And So now what they're telling you, they're going to give you, what are the cases that you're going to come up against when you're going to use these ashes? And the first case is in verse 11 and 12. And what is, what is the case? What is the first? Just touch a dead body. 
There you go. You come in contact with a dead person. Um, there seems to be uh, in this process uh, seven days is important, and on the third day, not sure if that in some sense points us to Christ or not, but, you know, there's, there's, there's symbolism. But look in verse 13. What happens if someone says, oh, this is ridiculous? I don't have to do this. You are cut off from the congregation. Now put this into our New Testament context. Someone says, oh, I don't need to, I don't need to actually uh, bring my sin to Christ in communion. Ah, f- forget communion. I don't need that. You know how serious this is. Now, honestly, the most important thing is that you take your sin to Christ. That's the most important thing. But has not God provided communion as a symbolic representation of bringing your sins to him? Cleansing. You know, that, those sorts of things. So, so how serious is it when someone just flippantly says, oh, I don't need that. I'll just, I'll just be on my own and go to God. You know, it's a serious problem when that occurs. So here we are uh, in, this, in this passage. First case, you come into contact with a dead person, and God takes it very serious. What's the second case? Yeah, so now you haven't really touched the dead person, but you are, they're, they're in your same home. And basically, not a whole lot of difference there, but it, it's just um, same thing. You need to be cleansed, okay? Uh, you can understand why, well, let's just turn there for a minute. You can understand why in 1 Corinthians 7, turn over there. First Corinthians seven. The the uh, Corinthian people, the, the church, they're struggling. Um, go down in verse um, uh, twelve. They're struggling with whether or not an unbeliever and a believer can live in the same house. You and I don't struggle with that today, do we? I mean, we might say that if you, to marry an unbeliever would be wrong, but we, we don't go, oh, there's a, there's a real moral problem with living in the same house with an unbeliever. We don't think that way today because we're not really steeped in Old Testament thinking. Because if you're in contact with a dead person, you need to be cleansed. Well, an unbeliever is a dead person, <laughs> a very unclean person. And you're constantly living with an unclean person. And so here, they're, they're like, Paul, what do we do? I'm a believer. My, my spouse is not a believer. What am I going to do? How can I live in the house with them? And he says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And he just basically is not, he's not saying that this is my opinion, not God's. He's just saying this is an issue that God didn't deal with, or Jesus didn't deal with while he was here on this earth. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So, you know... if you, if you don't have this Old Testament understanding that just being in contact with someone could make you unclean, this, this kind of passage makes no sense to us. You're like, what, what is he talking about? But if you understand your Old Testament, then you go, oh yeah, it would make sense. But there is a new principle in the New Testament, which is beautiful, right? So the, in, the, in the Old Testament, if a clean person comes in contact with an unclean person... Who's affected? Clean person. But in Christ, because Christ lives in you and you are, you are cleansed by the eternal blood of Christ that cleanses you at every moment and you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, your contact with an unclean person does what? Makes them clean. It's not saying saves them. Not saying that they're born again and that you know, they don't need to trust in Christ. But there's a, there's a new principle that's at work in the New Testament that we should rejoice in. It's a blessing that we have. We don't all constantly going, oh, you know, I rub shoulders with someone today and therefore I have to be cleanse myself at all times. That's not the way it works. 
in Christ. And, and we know this, but it's, um, it's just kind of fun to see that, that without Christ and his continual work in our lives, we would be made unclean. And we would stand before God judged. And so we should be thankful for his eternal sacrifice and his, his priest, priestly work in our lives. Does that make sense? Any questions? Yes, Ken. Yep. Okay, so that's excellent. So he, the question is, or statement is, is that the sacrament of baptism fits very clearly. I agree. Uh, uh, because baptism, this is the way I describe the difference between communion and baptism. Baptism looks at the whole in one snapshot. What does it mean to be clean? Well, baptism says, in the name of Christ, you are clean. And it's talking, it's a declarative statement. It's once in your life. You don't repeatedly get washed in baptism. Um, and so it's, a, it's just like this one snapshot of the entirety. It actually is not just that you're clean in the past. It is a, it's that you are clean when you stand before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. Your baptism is that, that same grace that was at the beginning is going to be with you there at the end. The whole thing, you are clean in Christ, okay? Communion, communion is, is it's dealing with the same things. Communion is cleansing. But it's, but it's ongoing cleansing, and it's for the purpose of um, the, the regularity and the fellowship that you have with Christ. It's an ongoing thing. You have an ongoing relationship with Christ. It's not just like, oh yeah, I was baptized as a kid, I'm good, do whatever I want. Every day, you're, you're walking with God, and you're in fellowship with Him, and, and communion helps us to see that it is an ongoing relationship, still based upon cleansing blood of Christ uh, and the washing. And it's interesting, the New Testament will often say, water and blood. Sometimes it'll just say blood, sometimes it'll just say water, but a lot of times water and the blood. And you can see in this sacrifice, you can see how the blood in the form of the ashes is mixed with the water for the cleansing of, your, of people, right? The water and blood cleanses you. And in, and in one place, uh, I think John says, these three are in agreement, the water, the blood, and the spirit, right? Because is it not true that the Holy Spirit is another cleansing agent in your life? So you can see how all three of them are, are in agreement with one another. Sometimes if you don't know your Old Testament, you read statements like that, and you're like, what are they talking about? Go ahead, Frank. I think about the ashes and them being put outside the camp for... I was thinking about the ashes being yep. put outside the camp for yep. further use and then mixed with water. And I'm wondering if, if the water became like lye water, and it actually was not only ceremonial, but the lye itself was reacting with germs and, and purifying mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, there's always, since I can remember first trying to study the Old Testament and understanding the ceremonial laws, there's always the question on how much these laws um, had temporal medicinal purposes. And I would, uh, using my illustration of my circle, um, I would say... We, we always talk about scripture, the meaning of Scripture is a circle, meaning that, that it's not just one meaning. There can be different aspects of meaning within the text or purposes of God. There is usually something at the very center of the text. And then there's, there can be what we call more peripheral meanings. They're still in the circle, but they're not the main point. And what I would do with this is that the main point of the ceremonial law is to point you to Jesus Christ. You, if you, you don't want to, you can make a side point that it might have had some health issues, but that's not the point of the text. It could be in the circle, might not even be in the circle, it's hard to tell, because we don't know. But it could be. But the main point, and you don't want to make you don't want to make these meanings replace this meaning. That's the main issue. You are clean in Christ by the by the cleansing of Christ's blood, 
and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is the most important lesson that you can get from this. So, does that help you there? Yeah. I, I, I don't want to deny that. I mean, it could be. But the, the Bible doesn't use that as an as a explanation. But it clearly points this stuff to our need for Christ. Lesser sins? Well, actually, they do deal with those kind of things. And you have to understand that the, the ceremonial laws, when you brought your offerings to the, to the tabernacle, you did eat a portion of those for your family. Like, you took a portion of it back home to your family. The, the Hebrews didn't typically just butcher animals just to butcher them, but they did eat meat for their family in connection with the, the sacrifices. Does that make sense? Uh, so... Um, Again, there's, there's differences. They wouldn't have eaten unclean animals, but they're okay with eating clean animals. And, so, and there was a very specific way that they had to handle those animals in killing them. So they would cut the throat, they would pour out the blood, and then they would start handling this, the animals. So, which is why this one is so different. We're actually taking the blood and, and including it on the altar, which is not typically what you did. So... I know that doesn't answer your question completely, Christian, but... Uh... <laughs> Right, and you would, it's, you would use these laws, even if, so here, these case laws, case laws are not meant, I wish Dan was here, case laws are not meant to be the only application of the law. So you just gave me another case. So if I were a judge in Israel, and we were talking about Christian, who happened to come in contact with a coyote, and he was, you could be, um, wanting to know what you do, then I would have to give you, I would have to take your situation and apply the laws that we do have on the books to your situation. And that's what they had to do. So a lot of times we think that the Old Testament law handled every situation. It didn't. It gave you principles that then you had to take in your situation and and apply. So, yeah. Otherwise, the Old Testament would look like American law, and American law has... I mean, I don't know how many laws. I do. I wish Dan was here. I mean, tens of thousands of laws on the books for every minutia of situation. Well, in the Old Testament, they expected the judges and the priests to be able to then take the principles and then apply them to this situation. Yes. Um, how it appears that our sin affects the rest of the congregation, the rest of the people, because even going back to Korah's rebellion, everyone in their household was killed, not just the ones who did it. So that sin affected their household. Mm -hmm. Um, Just talk about that for a minute. So the difference between uh, individual and what we call corporate or headship, um, there is a tension. Between these two in Scripture, you can't completely eradicate it, okay? Um, Ezekiel 18, 
You don't have to turn there now, but if you're interested in this, you should, you should read Ezekiel 18. It is absolutely explicit. If a father sins and a, and a son or daughter does what's right, the son and daughter don't get punished for what the father does. I mean, it's just absolutely clear. If a, if a father obeys and the child doesn't obey, the child doesn't get off because of the father's obedience. It's just absolutely that there is an individual judgment. And we reflect this when we take communion. I say, take the, the bread individually because you are going to have to stand before God individually. Based on your obedience, your faith, those sorts of things. You can't just rely on the faith of obedience of somebody else. At the same time, there is a corporate dimension, and, and you can't get away from this either. When you sin as a parent, you affect your whole household. You can't get away from that. It does. You, and, and your kids are uh, blessed or cursed, a lot of depending on the whole household, what's happening there. It's not just, you're not an individual. You're in, 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 a, in a corporate situation. Whole churches can be blessed by pastors and elders and those in, in leadership. I mean, it's just that's the way it works. There's a, there's a connection. You are not just an individual. And even in the law, it, it says this, that, the, you know, what does it say? The sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Well, that seems to be like the, the, the influence, right? You get so far along the line and, you know, like, are, is there really a whole lot of influence between your great-great-grandfather? Not as much. But those connected to you, there's a, there's a connection there. There's some kind of headship. In your salvation, in your salvation, you relate to, to God as an individual, and you relate to him under headship. So you personally must repent and, and turn to God. Okay, You're in a, You and God are in a relationship with one another. At the same time, Every one of us does not have a direct relationship with God. We have a relationship with God through our covenant head, Jesus Christ. Is it not his obedience that is applied to you? Is it not his intercession for you that, you know, Jesus says to Peter, uh, Satan has asked for you, but I have prayed for you. Well, he prays for Peter as Peter's covenant head. And this is similar as parents. Does God hear the prayers of parents? Or do parents just throw up their hands and say, well, it's up to them. Let them know, whatever. <laughs> no, you plead for your parents. You're supposed to, I mean, your kids, as a parent, you're supposed to because you have a right and a privilege as uh, the leaders in that home to pray for your children. And this, is, this headship, this connection issue is right there in 1 Corinthians when Paul says, that you, as the believing spouse, let's say there's you know unbelieving spouse and a believing spouse, you, in some sense, bring blessing on the household and make your unbelieving spouse holy and your children are holy because of what you, who you are. So you've got both of these going on, this individual aspect and this corporate headship aspect. And I don't know how to always work it out, but I will tell you that in the end, we will... We will praise God for both of them. Like it will be, like the people in Korah's rebellion that were kids that died, uh, somehow God will not be doing something unjust by killing an innocent person. God knows that even that child of the parent would, uh, unbelieving parent would, would have grown up and done the same sins, right? You know, and so there'd be, somehow his perfect justice is going to be meted out. I don't know exactly. Uh, and I know this is a long answer to this, but this is a hard question to deal with in Scripture. It's not an easy question. It absolutely relates to infant baptism. Your kids are under your covenant headship. That's why we can baptize them. They are clean in the Lord. But that does not guarantee that they don't have to individually receive Christ, right? I mean, they still have to come to him uh, individually. And, and so, yes, it absolutely relates. And this is why a lot of people don't get infant baptism. They either want to go one way or the other. They want to say that the parent is able to save the child, or they want to say, oh, those are the people that are... Uh, we call like hyper-covenantal, that, that you can actually bring a, guarantee the salvation of your child. Or on the other side, if you're, you're Baptistic, no, don't baptize them at all until you actually see them make their own personal decision. And we kind of stand in the middle of that and say, well, no, these are both true. Yes? Uh, back to uh, 
one, one Lori's question is kind of related to that maybe. Uh, you said just a minute ago when uh, a spouse is, stays married to, to an unbeliever, that unbeliever is sanctified. Yeah, made holy. That's what 1 okay, Corinthians and, and says. Yep. Quite a few minutes ago, you spoke about um, contact uh, between an unbeliever and a believer. Yep. The unbeliever is sanctified. Yep. And At I least would, in the household. Yep. In the household, I, under, I understand that. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't understand what, what is the effect of that sanctification well, that's, that's a, that comes back to this tension, right? So that sanctification cannot mean absolute salvation. Can't mean that. But God looks at that household, and there is some sense that he is treating that household as being under his blessing because they are holy to him. And I don't understand how that can, can work, but it, we see it in our own lives. Uh, if you... I, th this maybe is not a good example, but... As far as when I first became a Christian, I, f I wasn't confident of my mom's salvation at that time. She may have been, she, you know, and, and she definitely went to church and took me to church and all those kind of things. So and if she hears this, you know, I'm not trying to, <laughs> to say that she wasn't saved at that time. But, but I did see in my household, my dad didn't believe. I saw a lot of unbelief in my household, and I wasn't. But, but I can tell you that God, in a mysterious way, has worked through me over my lifetime to bring blessing upon my family. And certainly upon my, my own kids, you know, underneath me, but even in, in my extended family with my parents and stuff, that doesn't necessarily mean, it's kind of like when we say you're salt and light to the world, you, you're actually influencing them. You have, there's something that God is doing, he's using your prayers, you are like a priest in that family almost, by bringing, but you can't guarantee, and you'll get this in the sermon today, you don't get to manipulate God's grace and control it by yourself. And God is still sovereign over whom he saves. And that just, you, you know, so there's this, it's a tension that we live with our whole lives. I can understand that in the household, um, but I'm trying to uh, relate what you've said to my experience. Mm -hmm. And when I, when I gave my life to the Lord, I was pretty much kicked out of my family, mm -hmm. and um, I had no influence on them, it seemed, mm -hmm. and um, in conflict with other, other um, individuals, or if I just happened to be in a, a situation where I was... Um, okay, let me, let me just deal with that. I'm just having trouble Let me deal with that real quickly. So do you know when, like, um, the, the apostles, the disciples, they would go from town to town preaching Christ, and if they were re outright rejected then they would shake the dust off their feet and they would go to another town and they felt like judgment was upon that town because of their, because of their being treated so poorly. My family's reaction to me was still to embrace me. They didn't, they didn't outright reject me. They didn't kick me out of the home. Very different than your situation. And by their kicking you out, I think they actually don't realize the judgment that they brought upon themselves for doing that. So, so again... Their personal responsibility for how they treat the church. Remember, this is, this is true. You guys are God's treasured eye. Like he, he beholds you. You are his. How the world treats you matters. And there's a, there's a, it's a part of God's working out of his justice when the unbelieving world treats God's people poorly on the judgment day. They will be judged for that. That's, it's very clear in Revelation. How long will you go on letting your martyrs be martyred? God is going to judge those who judge the martyrs. So that, that's a part of this. So how you treat Christians is very important. So this, again, this, this corporate connectionalism and yet individual is, God, I'm just thankful God's the judge of it. He, he's going to get it perfectly in the end. So, you say that your family is made holy by your presence and influence mm. on them you know mm -hmm. i mean if they accept it or reject it mm -hmm. that's up to them but yeah your presence in their life you're praying for them and it's and that i think unity i agree with that i think that's the connection that but if you only have a sense of holiness the use of holiness that means absolute spiritual salvation 
then 1 Corinthians makes no sense. It just doesn't make any sense. I, I think our testimony has an influence in the world. I know when I was a teacher, um, I, was a, I was in predominantly female population of the teachers. And when I would come into the lounge, sometimes I'd hear them say, oh, oh let's stop talking about that. Here comes Frank. <laughs> they, they knew I was a Christian. And uh, mm -hmm. it wasn't that I was a male. It was that I was a Christian. Yep. Yep. Okay, so these are all struggles and questions, and, and they're really good ones. And I think only as I have read the Old Testament has it become easier to understand these tensions that are there. They're just there, and you, can't, you just can't. If you ignore them, you try to get rid of them. I had a conversation with a, a man who was largely reformed uh, this past week, uh, but, but didn't. Uh, he was having trouble with the covenant sign, you know, well, of baptism. Well, I basically just told him, you want to relieve the tension entirely, and you can't get rid of it. You just can't get rid of it. You know when we'll get rid of the tension? On the judgment day. Then we'll get rid of the tension, <laughs> and it'll be perfectly clear, and you know, only those who are in, uh, truly in Christ will be saved, and, and you know, it's just, but we can't get rid of it until then, so. Oh, Yes. Go ahead. No, no, that's good. Excellent. Yeah. I don't, mean, I don't mean to jump on. I always think, oh, man, I might get through two chapters today. No, we'll get through one today. That's it. Go ahead. I'm just going back to Deuteronomy 5.9 where it says, I'll visit the iniquity of um, uh, the fathers on the, upon the children to the, upon the third and the fourth generations. Yep. I think the key, the ending of that is um, of them that hate me. Yep. And it's so what we're talking about in terms of even... The wife sanctifying the husband, and the husband sanctifying the wife. Mm -hmm. the, that you know, the influence of the fathers there upon the children was to cause them—well, not to cause them, but to open uh, open a door or be an example of hatred of God and how they were behaving, and maybe even idolatry and this kind of thing. Um, in the same way, when you're a believer in your household, you, like they were saying, you know, whether you reject it or not, you have that um, influence. That godly influence um, open to your family. You know? Well said. Now, read the very next statement. Right? To the, the Deuteronomy 5, to the third and fourth generation. What's the next statement? I'm oh, sorry. Oh, okay. Well, I'll read it. I thought you had it right there for, in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, the um, Deuteronomy 5 then says... Um, Let's see if I can find where it is. Uh, yeah, so I'll just read it. Um, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands. And the, the idea there, thousands of generations. That's the context of those who love me and keep my commandments. So um, grace is more powerful than sin. And who is the one person who has truly obeyed God perfectly? Jesus Christ. And can we not say that there are a thousand generations of people that are saved in Jesus Christ? So his headship is the primarily means of this application, that he, he is the one of whom all people who are truly saved will be saved because of Christ's perfect obedience. As parents, you th I try to love God, but, but I can't actually say that my obedience to God saves my kids. Not in an ultimate sense. Maybe in a, in a, in a, God uses that, he's capable of using that, but it's ultimately Christ in that obedience. And so, uh, yes, is it true that the, the disobedience of parents can mean the judgment on the kids? Yes, but it's also true, due to grace, that God can intercede in that. And I am a case in point. I literally cannot go back in my history and find godly people, 
one line out of all my generations. I'm trying to find them, you know. Like, where's the line of someone who is clearly walking with God and loving God? Maybe one, but most of them are not. And yet God reached down and grabbed me. Why did he do that? His grace to a thousand generations. He's doing it because of Christ's obedience. So as a parent, yes, you should look at your obedience and your love of God as important, but only as it's in Christ. And you should point your kids to his grace, not just your own obedience. Uh, Yes, they should model you in your obedience, but more important than that is to show them Christ. They need Christ just as much as you do. Very important. Okay. It's amazing. I would never have thought we'd talk all about all this stuff in Numbers 19. Um, Okay, so um, Christian, in verse 16 of Numbers 19, uh, there is another case, right? Um, Whoever in the open field touches someone. So if you die in war... Well, they're just getting ready to go into the promised land where they're going to have to kill people and fight people. And so how are you going to apply this, this law of cleansing when you meet people in the field? You know, so uh, they don't necessarily deal with killing the coyote who's threatening your family, but they deal with a lot of situations of which you're trying to apply it to your life. Um, uh, it's funny, not funny, but they talk about that the water, there's no... no uh, uh, qualifications for the water except that it be fresh water that it not be stagnant water um, uh, but one that's clean uh, not having a bunch of um, contamination in it okay so another lessons that I think we should understand this to me are huge application I've said them before but I don't mind saying it again because you guys get taught you get the world around you gets taught this. Death is natural. You ever hear that? It's just a natural part of life. It's, it's almost beautiful in the cycle of life. You're born and you die, and it's just a natural thing. The Bible doesn't treat death that way. Every time someone dies or you got connected with death, it was unclean. You had to be cleansed. An Old Testament Jew would not have come up to the idea that death is natural. Death is upon us because of the curse. The curse separates us from God. Death is a part of his judgment for sin. Even if you didn't morally sin, you're connected to death. It's a part of the curse, and God's got to remove that. He's got to cleanse you from that. Death is not natural. What does Paul call death? In 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy. You won't be fully before God, clean and pure for eternity until he has conquered death, raised you with an imperishable body that will no longer be touched by death. That's what we're heading for. So in this passage, you go, oh, no, death is evil. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like taxes, you're going to die unless Jesus returns. So in some sense, it's not... You know, you have to learn how to deal with it, but never just say, oh, it's, it's good. It's just a good part of life. It's not. Yes, yes. That's a good way to put it. She says, death is a natural consequence of a fallen world. Yeah, it's not, it's not you're not dying because you personally committed some sin. It, it is a natural part of this fallen world in which we live in. Absolutely. So, but... Oh, yeah. And I've been, you know, the longer you're around people that have died, you know, as a pastor, I get to interact, you know, it, you can, in a sense, become uh, kind of, you're just okay with it. Like, it doesn't affect you as much. I still remember when I was younger and I first saw my neighbor dead, and it was, like, shocking to me, you know. I don't know that I have that same reaction, as, as I did, but I know from the law that God has that reaction because the curse is something he dies to remove. Yes? But is it because, is it because in, originally God did not intend, obviously, for our soul and our bodies to be separated? So that, that's our that separation of the spirit from the, yep. the body is 
the curse, right, is, yeah. is so horrible about it. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. Yep. And particularly if someone has a new heart. So that's why I think Jesus weeps over Lazarus' death. Because Lazarus is redeemed, and yet his flesh still has to die. And Jesus is not just saddened over it, he's angered by it. Because he doesn't want his children to have to experience this. He does, because it's what we need to go through, just like we follow him through death to resurrection. But you can see how it affects him. Because you are his, you have been bought. His death has removed the curse over you, and yet you're still going to have to go through death. That's why it's the last enemy. Okay. Um, if you, verse 20, if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person should be cut off from the assembly. Can't you just hear? John 3.16. Now let's just go to John 3.16. So here's the, here's the gospel clearly in this. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever neglects Christ, whoever doesn't think they need cleansing, whoever doesn't go to Christ, and he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, He is going to be judged. He's already under God's condemnation. That's that's what John 3, uh, 18 says that very thing. So, if it applies to people outside of the church, if you don't believe in Christ, you're going to be judged. How much more the person who is technically inside of Christ... Maybe he's been baptized, either as a child, or maybe he's been baptized as an adult, doesn't matter. But he just says, ah, I don't need Christ's blood. I don't need, ah, other religions can get to Christ. He is placing himself under the judgment as well. And they are to cut him off from the assembly. This is why when a church goes from believing the truth of the gospel to no longer believe in the truth of the gospel, they now become a synagogue of Satan. And why do we know that? Because because the, the Old Testament church, Israel, was the place of God's salvation. Then Israel rejects Christ. They reject him by sending him to the cross. They then also reject him when the Spirit is poured out at Pentecost, and they continue in unbelief. And in 70 AD, God crushes Israel, and the church now becomes the place of God's salvation. What Jesus says, I give to you, my disciples, the keys of the kingdom, because Israel has just devastated them, devastated that salvation. And that can happen in any church as well. That's why we should pray. That this church, after you're gone, doesn't fall away. Right? Pray that that doesn't happen. Um, Okay, the other thing, we're going to turn to Hebrews 9. We're going to close with this. I am not attacking any of my Baptist brothers with this. Please don't hear me. But I am defending Sometimes it is, it is said to us that the, it's not true cleansing if you just put a little bit of water on a child. Hogwash, Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of the heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. The idea is that God in his blood symbolized sprinkling upon you. That is what cleanses your soul. It's not about how much water. I don't care if you dunk or pour or whatever. It's not about that. It's about the blood of Christ being sufficient to cleanse your soul. (laughs) 
Cleansing with God is an ongoing, lifelong issue. Don't just think, oh, I believe the gospel once, I'm good to go. It's constantly, you see your sin, you remind yourself of your uncleanliness, you then take it to Christ, he washes over you. It's an ongoing process that occurs. Um, That's what we need. 1 John 1.9 teaches that, and you should have it memorized, I think. Um, So, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, also, in your heart, I know I said I was ending, but this is last, I promise. Is there a difference between forgiveness and clean? Now, I think they are very much related. But it's one thing to have someone say, you're forgiven. But there's a little bit more, something a little bit different that speaks to your heart that you are clean. You're no longer carrying around the filth of your uncleanliness. You are clean. And I think the, the Old Testament does a good job. These are not unrelated. If you're forgiven, you're, gonna, you're clean. But I think the idea of cleanliness before God is important. Because if you go to pray, if you go to stand in his presence, and all you think of yourself is how evil and corrupt and unclean you are, you will never be able to run into God's presence and let him wrap his arms around you. You are clean in Christ. And God wants you to communicate this. And he wants to communicate this to you. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your graciousness. We have the most precious promises in all the world. And we thank you for them. And we thank you that you took so much time to communicate these things to your people in the Old Testament. And we benefit from those. And we thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.